It is early June the 6th, 1944. There are thousands of Higgins boats waiting off the shores of Normandy. Hello and welcome to War Chat. I'm Grant. I'm Joey. And if you couldn't guess from the little bit of the intro, we are at Normandy today. This is our, where's my thing? This is uh fifth episode. We just have one episode left after this. For World War II. Wow. And by the way, we will be announcing our bid three in the last episode. Yes, we will. Because, because these six episodes were kind of one episode rolled into one. Yeah. We, we are uh, waiting to announce our bid three into the last episode. Mainly because then we can introduce our people and we've already talked about them. Yeah. So. Anyways, I will refuse to call Operation Overlord D-Day today just for the fact that every amphibious invasion and even other invasions are considered D-Day. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is missed in a lot of lot of realms. Anyways, um, we'll get right into it and I'll let you start off. So and it has two names, right? It's Operation Overlord and then Operation Neptune. No, Operation Neptune was the invasion by the Germans of Britain. It's his codenamed Operation Neptune has really? often been referred to D-Day. Really? Is I this was, falsehood? I heard that Operation Neptune was the proposal by the German army to invade England. Wow, this may be a falsehood. Are you using Wikipedia? No. <laughs> okay. Whatever you say. Okay. So but Wikipedia whatever, is... it's Operation Something, uh, yes. otherwise known as D-Day, and that's coming up. Uh, what did you say? When when is that again? It's Saturday. It's yeah, this Saturday. Saturday. This Saturday. Today um, is June the first, and it'll be Saturday. <laughs> And we plan this out like this so that we would be as close as possible and still be on our publishing date to when we would be doing the episode. We wanted to be able to be close to D-Day. And I forgot to add up what anniversary this will be. I saw it and they had it in the paper and I yeah. forgot. Anyways, uh. so... You know, it's funny how they, at first, they were going to go with it that faithful night, and they had to delay it, like, 24 hours. And if they hadn't done that 24 hours, they'd have to wait, like, two other weeks to go with the operation because they were waiting for the weather to just be right. And it wasn't even just right when they did it, though. It was really unideal weather conditions, especially for, like, the paratroopers and stuff and all that. It should be 76. Should be anniversary 76. Yeah. I think. I just did the quick math in my head. So don't hold me to that. But this Saturday. I'm holding that to you. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, actually, talk, going back to that part, sorry. I was kind of out of the talking for a second because I was trying to figure out what. That, that's all right. That's all right. Anyways, um, how I understand it is the original date was supposed to be June the 5th. Mm hmm. And then they had to wait and postpone it. And the reason, if I remember right, right, the reason was because of how the moon was and how the tide was. Yeah. 
it needed to be like lower mm-hmm. ties, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it needed to be lower ties because I knew of the fortifications on the beaches. Because there was a and, lot of stuff going into this. You got all the beaches, then you got all the paratrooper landings. I mean, two huge aspects of D-Day that had to be planned just right to work. Yeah. And um, thing about, <laughs> the thing about the paratrooper landings in D-Day, it was mass diffusion. Uh, it was mass diffusion. Um, for the Germans and for the American paratroopers. Yeah, it was on both sides. It was like mass confusion is what exactly was happening because, you know, it's in the cover of night. And to clarify that the paratroopers came first in D-Day. Before the landings, they came in the middle of the night before, and they were landing British, Canadian, and uh, American paratroopers. Landed first to start causing confusion, and that's what they did. But they caused it on themselves, too. Yeah, it didn't really affect the troops on the beaches that were confused. It was yeah. more the paratroopers. But I think the fact that the paratroopers got confused helped confuse the Germans too yeah. because it was there was no rhyme or reason for why the paratroopers were where they were at. Yeah. Because the pilots, one, had gotten off target and dropped them miles away from their targets. And what was happening too is like entire squads were like totally split up and having to find themselves randomly in chicken coops or in trees. And they had to slowly but surely kind of regroup themselves. Some paratroopers, it was the the two main divisions were the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne for the Americans. So you had 101st guys with 82nd and with 101st guys. All these guys are all spread up and, you know, this guy's from this squad, that guy's from that squad, and they're all trying to kind of gather their forces. And the problem from the paratrooper landings is they used a communicator, a, a um, signaler called a cricket. I think mm. that's what they called it. Um, it was actually a toy, I believe. Yeah, it was an English and, toy that they had picked up in England. And it was kind of like a cricket toy, uh, a cricket sound. The only problem is the type of cricket sound it makes. And I've seen this done in several different movies. And I can understand it after I've heard the sound and everything. It can, the cricket can also sound like the um, racking of a rifle. Mm-hmm. Especially the German yeah. rifle. If, Which that, that uh, in some cases, the Germans kind of found out what was going. And they kind of, because of their bolt action, they were able to start mimicking it. Yeah. Now, I I've heard that from firsthand accounts. I know in the longest day that's described. Yeah, that's that's a good one to to. That is actually just an excellent D-Day movie. It is. Um, but like most World War II movies, it is very confusing. I cannot even name any of the characters yeah. because there's just so many. They they have it's an so epic. Many it's a war epic. Yeah. Uh, there when on those lines too of having to use these different and they had they no no you know they clarify you know they didn't not all of them had the clickers they had different kind of uh you know that could be overemphasized they had other forms of communication but that was one of them but also uh there was actually I was reading some accounts earlier and there was a paratrooper uh from the eighty second who was uh hiding in bushes or he actually had fallen from his tree and was hiding. He had injured his leg and he heard, he started hearing just uh, squeaking. 
like very like leather squeaking. And he can realize that it was Germans because as he says, like the jury from his, from his, uh, memoir, he says the Germans wore so much leather. You could hear them squeaking from like 10 miles away because how much leather they wore. I mean, everything they had was leather. So all he hears is just, and he, you know, he finally, he stuck his head up and it was a couple of Germans and he just kept hiding and, uh, he didn't open fire or anything because he was alone, but. That was just funny that hearing him say that because I mean, really think about it, the Americans all had they didn't have like the all the leather gear that the Germans had. No, and actually, this is a little bit off track, but the the uh, the German helmet that was worn in the beginning of World War One actually had a lot of leather on it. Mm-hmm. It was actually mostly leather with some metal parts. Mm-hmm. That's just something you know. It's it's extra. It's free. That's yeah. a little free extra. <laughs> Anyways, I wanted to get into some of the earlier planning stages and uh, stuff like that for D-Day. Um, there's a lot that went into it. Uh, you know, we've talked about already the lead up really to it in a lot of ways. North Africa, Sicily, and Italy were all kind of, pre- you know, leading up to D-Day. Or, as I wanted to call it, Normandy. But I, I fall away. I, I am one of those that fall into, without thinking about it, calling it D-Day. Um, but yeah, you have all those predecessors. And England, it just, England basically got taken over by the U.S. Yeah. In a lot of ways. <laughs> like, most of the U.S. Army was in England. Like nineteen forty three, um, you know, you know the famous White Cliffs of Dover. Yeah, that's where the American Rangers trained at to be able to scale the cliffs at Point Point Hawk. Yeah, I was about to mess it up. That's where they trained on the cliffs of Dover to be able to, or at least. My, if my memory serves me right, they did. <clears throat> oh yeah, they did a lot of training. They they, they trained in areas like the White Cliffs of Dover. I and um they scaled those. They they learned uh how to do that. The but the biggest and most important thing to me is Patton's Ghost Army. And I'm sure you've heard about this, but literally, um, there's like. 10 guys dedicated from the army and their whole point was to make a fake army. And I think if I'm not a hundred percent certain, but I think they called it the third army. I'm not a hundred percent on what, on the exact name of it, but um, they put Patton in charge of it. So on the books, so spies got a hold of the books and they, they were meant, the spies were meant to get a hold of the books. Um, it said that Patton was in charge of this huge army, and you'll even see pictures and videos out there of Americans, and they'll walk into a tank that looks perfectly real, and they'll push it, and it'll roll over. They had inflatable inflatable tanks, inflatable trucks, and they would just like leave these parked out in fields and stuff, and it, and it was in like Scotland or maybe even north northern England, um, and they would do all this to try to make people think that Patton was part of the invasion. 
And really, Patton wasn't part of the invasion. Um, he was he didn't come in until later in the actual ground assault. But to the Germans, Patton was their number one enemy. And and so, but Eisenhower Eisenhower was you know the commander of that theater. And his staff predicted 80% losses. Think about that. Dang. You are so certain that your attack is going to fail that you predict 80% losses. I mean, that's like this defeat. I mean. Yeah. Eisenhower had already wrote, uh, not wrote, written his speech that the U.S. had launched an attack on France, and that it had failed. He had already started to write his... Uh, it was actually already uh, wrote. Um, I'm not certain if that is in archives or not. I'm not certain if they have saved that. I just know that I've heard that through uh, different people, mm-hmm. that the speech was already written, and he was ready to give it on the late like afternoon of June the 6th was when he planned to give it whenever the attack had failed. But surprisingly, losses were low or then expected. I'm not certain what the exact percentage was. Um, I mean, it's hard to say because there were a lot of losses, but the losses were relatively low compared to what they have predicted. At least compared to 80%. Sure, it was a awful number. It's just compared to 80%, it was a, it was less than that. Yeah. But still, and, we lost a lot of a lot of a lot of men. Yeah. And I actually have a diagram right here laying in front of me um that shows where the different beaches were located. And the one that just surprises me the most is where Utah is located it is like off like it's way off compared to the other beaches I mean the US soldiers that were at Utah were basically on their own Mm -hmm. the thing with uh, Omaha Gold, Juno and Sword where they were all like right beside each other basically it did but it took them forever to link those beaches though the Gold, Juno and Sword all those English and Canadian Fellas, they it took them forever to link, and those are probably those were a little more not as heavy as Omaha. That's all I'll say. It's not maybe not as intense as Utah and Omaha, but you know they it was still uh, heavy fighting, but maybe not as heavy. But it just took them longer to to link them because they're all next to each other, and it was like link them. Mm-hmm. I understand that Omaha was the one that was the hardest for the yeah. U.S. to take. I mean, it took, like, for the most part, the footing was held on the beach by midday mm-hmm. on June the 6th on all the other beaches. But Omaha, I think it took, like, until, like, the evening mm-hmm. before they had yeah, what, they what couldn't move. a good foot. Yeah. And plus, I mean, you're assaulting like a a wall, a high, huge wall of bunkers, you know, a top like a cliff of bunkers, basically. Not maybe such a cliff as Point Du Hawk, but like 
just a solid wall of like concrete, basically, when some of like, you know, Sword and Juno and Gold were a little more easier as far as you had scattered kind of bunker systems, but it wasn't like the huge uh, concrete walls like the Americans had to face in Omaha. Yeah. And I don't I don't really know why they didn't concentrate all the troops closer together. Just looking at how. They yeah. Of course. I mean, I know it all uh, works for a purpose. You know, we could see that, you know, yeah. we did win the landings. So I'm, I guess it was for good that, you know, these other beaches were taken and stuff because you never know. I guess causing all that, all those beach landings, I guess, helped each individual one and helped against the against the Germans. Yeah. Well, yeah. the Germans were already, the Germans had already just uh, started having the lower hand because um Erwin Rommel was in charge of the German fortifications, but it was actually Hitler who had uh refused to allow like four whole panzer divisions to support the beaches, which he didn't. He left like he gave like he gave Rommel like two out of seven or something and he kept the rest and he put it a distinct order on it that like Hitler could only command those units. So he gave him like two throwaway panzer divisions, which could hardly help with anything. So it was already for the, from the start really kind of starting to crumble for him, even though it was a really hard, of course it was, took so much strength and fighting to take those beaches. It had already starting to crumble for the Germans. Cause if they had given if Hitler had sent all those Panzer divisions, I mean that, you know, it it would it could have been could have been disastrous. Oh yeah, it would have been. It was a it could have been Dunkirk all over again, like a nightmare, like having to pull out all the troops again because they're being encircled and assaulted by you know, all these tanks and stuff. But thankfully, that didn't happen. So, and that worked in our favor. So. You know, you never know. What is the mind of Hitler? You never know. He's just gotten to one of his tantrums and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, if the attack would have been driven back at Normandy, the Russians were still winning in yeah. the east. Right? Yeah. yeah. East. I wanted to check my directions. I didn't want to. Get the compass out. Yeah. Get the, Get the compass out. Um, but, yeah. The ultimate, the plot of doom had already yeah. began even before. Norman. Yeah, especially yeah, with it like you know the victory in the Italian front and stuff like that was already pushing them. Yeah. And the yeah. Russians were getting their dander up more. And so, and factories were being bombed basically yeah. every day, night and day. Like the U.S. Air, the U.S. Army Air was bombing all day long. Yeah, and this at this point too, like and fighting the- never stopped from now until like the end of the war. Like it was just constant warfare between Germans and somebody. But but yeah the drive through France was relatively easy if you look at the times. Like it kind of is surprising how quickly the drive through France happened. But they did I I have read about that um, the original plans were they would uh, the allies would land, take the beach, establish beachheads and push inland. And that's what they did. They established and 
pushed inland and their uh, their uh, ob- objectives were Carrington, St. Lowe, uh, a uh, uh, what's the um, what's the name? Can Can there it is Kane and uh, and then the fillets and all those were objectives that were actually not taken as quick as quickly as they would have hoped and they actually didn't they didn't take a single one of them until uh, uh, later. Then having there saw heavy fighting having to take these towns, especially like the paratroopers at Carantan, they're holding there. St. Lowe was a stronghold. All the Germans were able to hold those towns. So they weren't actually able to uh, accomplish everything they wanted to accomplish. It was good accomplishment to take the beachheads and establish them and push inland, but they really they hadn't completed everything they wanted to complete. Yeah. Which erupted in yeah. even heavier fighting, especially for St. Lowe. And then the fighting, the British had the British and Canadians pushing down the Falaise Road was uh, heavy, heavy losses for the British and Canadians. Um, and then the battle for Carentan was heavy on the paratroopers, uh, heavy also for the British, heavy for Kane. It was just starting to erupt into town warfare. You know, all these taking all these French towns that were heavily, heavily guarded by Germans, including Panzer Division and stuff. So it was like the beach battles, and then all of a sudden it turned into these just massive, big old ruthless fighting for these building by building. Which was which was very yeah. costly. But luckily you had the yeah. French resistance and uh they of course gave intel they contributed so greatly you could just more likely call them the french army of world war ii because of how much they actually contributed while the actual french army didn't really do anything the french resistance really is the the official french they're the free french and really are the the actual army and state that actually helped when the first government was just yeah exactly like the French government was like, surrender. Of course, the French had Yeah, I mean, it, it was really, if you want to take a realistic look at it, I mean, they had gotten just spent and destroyed, basically, from World War One. even though they were victorious. I mean, the, the, the France played a huge, huge part in World War One and were a great army, but their losses were so heavy. You know, of course, if you put yourselves in their shoes... Do they really want to go in a full-scale war again? And they had been so affected by uh, the war and stuff, World War One, you know, because really you could see how like how much help could they really have done? Because they're, I mean, all their armies were basically just spent with a handful of guys left. So, you know, and plus yeah. their ele- their yeah. leaders were starting to kind of falter, so. But the uh, French resistance could definitely be located to, like, be related, at least in initial tactics, to the Mafia. Because, like, they would show up and just, like, machine gun people down, like, not, not, like, just people, but, you know, Germans. It was a a really dangerous business, and you really commend uh, the French resistance and all the resistances, too. I mean, the Polish resistance and the French resistance and stuff, just really the... The struggles they put up with keeping things secret and the amount of times they were in contact with the allies during D-Day and stuff. It was it was risky because 
doing uh, working under underground like that was a dangerous business and sometimes a lot of people lost their lives because of it because the germans would would find out to be a french resistance you would rather die by being shot in a firefight yeah captured and i'm sure there was cases where capture was in in uh, Mm it was definite that some decided it would be better to take their own lives than to and to be honest I don't blame them in mm-hmm. some scenarios because the Germans were yeah. ruthless in their treatment of mm-hmm. the resistance um not saying that not saying that the uh, suicide thought yeah. is the best idea at but least for just for them it SS was, but facing 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 yeah. the SS and the Gestapo was probably I mean either way is death, but you can decide which. I remembered um, a couple of uh, cool stories about back to the the beach landings. I know we're going from which way to the other, but that's just how we roll. Um, but they, uh, I know you have. The story you should mention about the dude who came on the beaches with a sword and longbow. And also there was a guy I uh, heard about just a, a couple of days ago, a uh, veteran from North Africa in Sicily um, from the big red one division. And it was uh, the account is from a uh, private on the on Omaha Beach and him and his squad were totally fresh troops. They had not been a part of North Africa or Sicily. And they, this was their first engagement. And uh, they were pinned down on the beach and they could see to their left, to their far left was a bunker that was on the concrete wall. And it was just pouring down fire on in front of them. So, and they were to the flank of it and they were watching it. And all of a sudden this uh, sergeant came hobbling over and it uh, planted right next to him, and they could see that he had a big red one uh, uh, patch on his arm. And he just looked at them and he said, he pointed over to the bunker. And he said, "Get some fire on that baby." And they're like, "Okay." And then he ran off and started running down the other side of the beach. And they started firing it at it, and sure enough, they were able to attack the flank and able to take out that bunker. So this, and they were like, "Well, that big run, big red one guy was able to." take care of it he just popped up and said put some fire on that baby and he ran off that's a big red one division for you yeah um going yes to that's a cool and, and broad and which in what beach was so, this this would have been one of the british beaches i'm not it was gold juno or sword it was, it was funny it would be funny if yeah, it was sword it, but it, probably not yeah it, yeah, it would be funny if he was sword. But I've laid some background down for this guy. So, who you were mentioning was Mad Jack Churchill, part of the SAS. Um, he is probably legally insane. <laughs> um, to be, no, he, he, he was a smart guy. Like, he was a smart guy. And he was one of those guys that would accept any challenge and that's part of the reason why he uh mm-hmm. went on the beach like he did. Um but so because of his last name he had gotten in his operations uh-huh. as an SAS guy, 
he got captured multiple guy, times and because of his last name, treated pretty well because they thought that he was a relative yeah. of Churchill, uh-huh. of Winston Churchill. Come to find out he was no relation other than, you know, like, like people would think by his <laughs> name, but, you know. um, But he did multiple acts of heroism throughout his whole career. But at Junior Swords or at the beaches, um, he uh, he decided to take it to the next level. And in some ways, you would think that he, or I think he was trying to rally the British troops yeah. behind him. Because just think, if you see a guy running onto a beach with a sword and a longbow and being successful, like, I mean, he had like more kills. And I know that's a, that's a bad way to think of it. But if yeah. you have it in sniper terms, he had more kills than most of the, you know, he was successful. He, uh-huh. he was functioning. And in lots of ways, I guess he terrified the Germans, too, because it's not every day that you have a crazy guy yeah. running at you with a longbow <laughs> and a broadsword. And I just feel like if I would have been there, if I was another British private, and I saw this guy being successful with his stuff, and I had a rifle, I feel like that would like strengthen my morale ten times because he's using the old technology and being successful against the Germans and I'm using modern technology, I can be successful against yeah. the Germans too. So it 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 was really amazing what he did. Um but I was gonna tie back in just a little thing about the SAS and other special units, including some. Hey, what the uh, SAS uh, stands for? Special yeah. Air Service is nothing like yeah. what it sounds like. <laughs> um, special Air Service is basically a mixture of, um, to be honest, a mixture of the United States uh, FBI, CIA, and Navy SEALs all mixed into one. They're they're they do you know they do spy missions they do but they're military based organization so they recruit from their armed forces and they're still in the armed forces but they're basically a mixture of all three and they do really anything the best way to probably describe them is they're the equivalent of the Israeli Mossad. Mm-hmm. If you know what that is, um, but in World War Two, they—if uh, you've ever watched the uh, old TV show called The Desert Rats—that you mean the Rat Pack? Off. That's who the Desert Rats are based off of. The, yeah, the Rat uh, Pack. Yeah, from from yeah, but they're called the Desert Rats. Um, different names like that, but they were famous for. In North Africa, mounting machine guns, 50 caliber machine guns on jeeps, and just attacking airfields and stuff. And like, they're a demo, more of a demolition team than a special air service. Maybe, maybe that's their way of tricking the Germans by calling it a special air service. Sound like mailmen or something. Yeah, but (laughs) yeah, but really, they might have been killer mailmen. They're a killer mailman. And now I just envision guys in blue uniforms yeah. with grenades. Yeah. With a little melman hat. Just 
chucking grenades. Um, but yeah, that that's and another thing that I want to tie in here with this with the ASAS. The Navy SEALs also got their beginning in um in at Normandy because there were uh well they're just considered then and it's really the predecessor to the Navy SEALs were frogmen. And they went ashore like the night before the invasion, I think, and disarmed most of the mines. Like they blew up most of the mines. Um to try to keep the, or maybe it was the more, maybe it was just like just before the invasion started, but they were, they that's the beginning of the Navy SEALs, and that's it, it's just kind of interesting tie in. Would uh, would something send the people to really uh emphasize too is not only was this uh awesome and uh great for the people of france and for the whole world really i mean this this offensive this deed these normandy landings and the push into france i mean was uh such a morale boost and it was hope for the cause for the allied cause and knowing worldwide it was just a, an amazing feat and you never you do not have this is one of the main offenses too that you don't have the that amount of valor that these guys uh, portray these guys that what they did, uh, especially on Oma, the beaches, um, their uh, uh, innovation to uh, take out and to act and destroy, try and destroy the bunkers to try and go forward and take the beach. So many guys lost their lives in the process and trying, but they died trying and others were completed it and moved on but the kind of valor and bravery that the all and i in every beach that these guys pulled off was like like any other like not like any other war um um in a little bit is kind of like a sad but also interesting note that um, Normandy was kind of a promotion beach for a lot yeah. <laughs> of sergeants. A lot of sergeants got uh, like first lieutenant ranks at Normandy because so many uh, of the lieutenants and low-ranking officers got uh, killed at Normandy that there was there were a lot of sergeants who got promoted at Normandy to uh, officer rank, so promoted just because they had to have a command structure, and it had basically the low command mm-hmm. had gotten wiped out. And it's crazy to think about. I'd um, seen accounts of uh, from eyewitnesses to, uh, especially to Omaha and uh, mostly Omaha and also Utah, but especially at Omaha, there were accounts of uh, different boats, the landing craft. Uh, when the ramp would go down, they would charge out and go as far as they could. But there's accounts of at least uh, more than two of landing craft boats dropping and just being the complete squad being just massacred by machine gun fire before they even got out. If not exploded by a uh, mortar shell, it was just gunned down um, several times. The ramp would just come down and an entire squad would just get mowed down before they could even move. And that's just a crazy thing to think about. And then some soldiers were starting to drown. They would jump in the water 
uh, feet, you know, several uh, away from the beach to try to swim, but they had so much gear that they were drowning and they weren't, you know, they were going under. Um, and then of course, just the bullets were spraying everywhere and it, it really just can't, can't imagine what these guys had to go through. Of course, you have a lot of movies that, uh, really portray what really what these guys could have seen, but I don't think any kind of movie could ever really, uh, justify or really show you what these guys really went through and what they saw and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is part of the problem I've heard about at, about the jump in the water thing. Um, the high command had issued the order that uh-huh. everybody take full packs because they were planning on going clear in. Yeah. In 24 hours. Getting clear into the getting off the beaches and clear into yeah um, France, you know, like into the you know not like but a couple miles in, and they had issued the order that everybody take full packs. You wonder how many how many guys would have been saved from drowning if they were if they were just. And it would have been, they could have ran faster too when that ramp jumps down, you know, could have running on the beach and stuff. But instead, they got all this random equipment that's, you know, that's all weighing them down. Yeah, it's not even for now. That that is a flaw that I feel like they should have done to have them all without without so much gear. Yeah, and you just thought that, like, especially the first wave, at least, the first five waves had no gear and that could have been brought up later like it could have been brought I hate to leave out just to mention real quick uh, I know it's not it's uh, it, it's it's kind of wrongly portrayed in some movies but historically uh, Point to Hawk was the third American beach and it really was not uh, one of the lesser uh, beaches as far as the combat and uh and uh, strength to to take it. It was re- it was relatively taken fairly quickly, but it was hard though, as you said. They they uh, train for this kind of stuff, especially at the White Cliffs of Dover. They had to point to Hawk was a cliff, and they actually the the GIs landed at the bottom and had to scale. I I can't tell you the actual the feet of this cliff. But it was, what? I think it's about 200 feet. It seems yeah. Like, it seems like so they had not only feet, so I they think. had these you know uh, rope systems that they would shoot up there and they would climb by rope. They also had um, these ladders that they would stick together. They had them all in pieces that they would stick together on the beach and make them so long that they would uh, stick them up, throw them up on the cliff, and they would climb up them. Uh, but that that is a really that was a struggle for them. Because you are under fire. There, of course, there were Germans there firing down on them, and several were killed. And but that—that's—that's that's some heroism right there. Just having to scale that size of a cliff while being under fire and getting up there. You know why? You know why there's not many stories of how why? hard it was to take it. Is because it was yep. taken by the U.S. Army Rangers, and they are. For that yeah. type of operation, they are the best because they are a large force, 
specialized group. The only ones that would be better if we had a, if they would have had them, well, they did have them then, but they weren't used there. Was the Tenth uh, Mountain Division probably would have been able to do that very well, yeah. also because they were used to climbing ropes. Um, and I'm gonna go off off track right here for a second, but thinking about the Tenth Mountain Division, some of the establishing uh, trainers for the skiing part for the Tenth Mountain Division. Were right. part of the really? Von Trapp family. Two of the boys, two of the Von Trapp boys, That's were awesome. part of the Tenth Mountain Division, and they helped train because of them growing up in Austria. They helped train. Uh, That's really cool. American guys, how to ski. Yeah, it is especially if you're one that is attached to plays and musicals and stuff. And I know you I were. were. I mean, I am. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but yeah, but I'm saying I actually just saw the sound of music yeah. not too long ago. Yes, yeah, it was a it Maria, was a great right? experience. It really was. <laughs> oh yeah, I knew you had that right voice. I'm glad the directors gave me a real okay. chance for it. You know. Yes, <laughs> Lucy. Yeah. So. Um, really, I would feel be... could be one of the most gallant days of battle in World War II. If not the greatest, it's pretty high up there with just the size, bravery, and gallantry. Um, you did have a lot of see, we could tie into the there was lots of beach landings in the Pacific Theater because you got a lot of different that was a that was a uh, you know common occurrence. I I don't know about common, but it was a regular occurrence for the Pacific because for the Marines and stuff that you'd have beach landings because you know they would be fighting on in the jungle on beaches and stuff. But go ahead, sorry. Think think about how much different Normandy would have been yeah. if they would have had Hueys. Mm-hmm. Just dropping them off yeah. behind the behind the wall. Now that would be funny if yeah. the US had developed a secret a secret helicopter and the Germans were planning on like a full a full assault by Higgins votes. And which I mean, that even that even now she said that even adds even more up to, to their gallantry. Is even that the, even though that they could have had this technology that would have worked probably better. I mean, just that kind of bravery that you're just going on this little boat and that ramp goes down and you just got to run like heck. I mean, they really, and if you get hit and sometimes you did, and a lot of guys got hit and, you know, of course wounded, but I mean, that kind of just, I can't imagine that kind of just bravery that knowing that when this ramp goes down, I might lose my head and, but I'm just going to go for it. And I just that takes so much bravery. I mean, I know, and they would they would say that. I mean, every guy who survived that beach, I mean, could deserve the Medal of Honor. Could deserve every yeah. single medal that there could be. Yeah. I believe they could. I believe any guy that survived that could deserve, especially Omaha. Omaha, really, I would say for that. Maybe uh, not a couple others, but Omaha at least. Every guy who survived Omaha should be awarded every single medal. 
What? You know what most of those guys would tell you? Mm-hmm. They'd tell you they were just doing their job. Yeah. That's what they are trained to do. Because mm. that that's that's how humble they are. Is they were, that was just their job. That's that was just what they were supposed to do. It wasn't. I feel like actually today people get yeah. too many rewards exactly. for doing nothing, and it just kind of goes to show. In World War Two, there's lots of guys who deserved stuff, but to them. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't anything special. Mm-hmm. They they were doing their job. That's, it 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 yeah. It was bravery, but kind of that they were in the army overall was the fact that they were brave. And a word too that I don't want to leave this, I don't want to leave them out. But we mentioned about the uh, of course what started this the the offensive were the paratrooper landings, and we talked about in the night before the the landings these paratroopers had been uh, dropped in but they had to once they took once they gathered and uh uh rendezvoused all their squads when they found their objective like for an example i mean the british paratroopers their objective was pegasus bridge which is a vital bridge to hold for the infantry coming in and so just like them and the Americans, the 82nd Airborne, 101st, the Red Devil, British paratroopers, Canadian paratroopers, when they found their objectives, their orders were to hold them. And that was it. You couldn't do anything about it. Like, you hold that. That was basically hold until relieved. It was actually an actual actual command. And that was, their, that was their order. So as not only in the middle of the night they had to be fighting, but all the way up to past the landings, paratroopers were still in heavy combat. There's accounts from uh, American infantry coming from Utah into and uh, uh, liberating paratroopers that had been fighting all through the night. And he said, I mean, these paratroopers were like down to 30 percent, 30 percent strength and were barely holding on. And they were just all just basically all cooped up in like one little bombed out building still waiting for another attack. Because, I mean, they're constantly being counterattacked, 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 attacked from all different fronts in these towns and stuff. But he did say that these paratroopers still had not lost any of their cockiness. They were still cocky as ever. Paratroopers are always like that. Just like pilots. Yeah. But that is something too. the amount of not only amount of bravery that went into the beach landings, but I mean, for those paratroopers, English, Canadian and American, I mean, having to hold those buildings. I mean, they were fighting for, I mean, through the night all the way. I mean, several days they were in the in heavy fighting in these towns. And so that would that took uh, so much bravery. Yeah. Yeah. I was certain some of them were starting to run out of ammunition. Yeah. But and I feel like they that that was their own kind of that was their own can of worms too. It's just the the mighty defense and offense, you know, like kind of like a last stand kind of thing. Like some of these, like some of the 101st uh, Airborne, especially some of those towns, and especially the British, especially the British at Pegasus Bridge. I mean, the kind of stuff. Yeah, they're running out of ammunition and the kind of their just holding on by a thread basically in defense against the Germans. Cause the Germans were, it was in the heart. It was past the landings. 
in the heart of France. And these the Germans, the Panzer divisions mostly, were just hammering into these paratroopers from all sides. I wonder uh, how many British and American paratroopers picked up uh, German weapons just because they were out of ammunition. Yeah. And what's crazy, too, is not only, especially with the 101st Airborne, um, there was still, I mean, long after, not long, I mean, uh, some of days, I should say, were still holding their positions that had not been relieved. There were still some paratrooper squads that were out so far, they were still fighting. Like, you know, a week after the landings, we're still holding on and infantry were trying to get there and uh, relieve them. Yeah. Some of them even fought even longer than most of the ones and most of the British that were closer to the beaches. Some American units were so far out further into French countryside that they were running around as squads and trying to get trying to get support but probably and luckily for them they would have been in the rear echelon though of the germans then because for the most part the germans probably ceased fighting small paratrooper units and tried to rush and build a defense against the uh main force yeah so they at were- least the big the big divisions would have, of course be caught with what the bigger picture but you yeah. have just constant kind of they'd leave you know a couple squads or something you have just constant kind of they attack we attack they attack we attack kind of thing but, against a small party of germans yeah. but but it, with american ingenuity they probably could have hid and fought yeah you know hide appear to fight for just a little bit and then hide again you know, and another keep- thing to to stress too that I uh, that we didn't mention uh, before we uh, sign off is, like I said, I was reading a lot of uh, accounts from English Canadians and Americans, and uh, I had seen that after so many accounts, the what they had to say about the Germans, uh, the German, the enemy that they had to face. We talked so much about the Allies, but really the enemy that. All different, the Americans, Canadians, and British all could agree on the same thing. That I just mean, the Germans that they had to face were unlike any enemy that they had faced. They said just the the strength and the bravery that they did face against these Germans. I mean, their fighting techniques, they were just, they, from their accounts, they were just saying how strong the Germans were, especially the British. That just how what a magnificent force really are fighting. Of course, they were fighting the enemy, the Nazis, but just such a tough force. They were really they were an enemy to reckon with, especially in the fight in the hedgerows and the fights in Cairntown and stuff and the, the strongholds. I mean, the Germans, they were they were a tough, very tough when it came to their their squads. Yeah, and it, it shows throughout the whole war overall. In the Africa Corps and um, so like that, but and I especially the to... Panzer Division too. You don't mess with the Panzer Division; those guys yeah. were rock solid. Uh, what I wanted to mention in some special warfare is, along with the um, regular paratroopers, the uh, they also dropped little dummy paratroopers too. Mm-hmm. They're about the size of a typical like baby doll, you know, like yeah. 
they're about the size of like a like a little teddy bear or baby doll or something like that. Mm-hmm. But whenever they were falling through the air, of course you can't judge in the sky. Yeah, how far something off is. It looked like a huge, huge invasion of just paratroopers. And that's probably one of the things that impresses me the most is that they did that. Why couldn't they have mass produced those babies? Yeah. I wonder if there's still some out there. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody that probably mm-hmm. has one. Yeah. A selector or somebody, even if it's some like a replica that they got from, uh, you know, that they didn't drop. Like, they should have used that technique more often if they had produced more of them. Yeah. Think about if they would have used that market garden or something yeah. like that. Because that, that, the kind of confusion that that brings, especially for the Germans, especially D Day, is just that 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 starts confusion. All of a sudden, seeing tons and tons of men dropping from the sky, you're like, uh oh. Well, they should. I I would debate the wisdom if they shouldn't have um done that like for a couple months leading up to D Day, even in Germany. Yeah. You know, like just different places, just doing that. Just to get them like used to seeing these things drop, uh-huh. and all of a sudden drop real guys in there, and then they're on their their guard is low. You know, they're like, "Oh, it's just another dummy run." Yeah. And just think about that. Just think, like all of a sudden, you realize that there's tens of pairs tro- troopers on the ground. They're not just wooden dummies. Mm-hmm. It it, it would have been it definitely would have been confusing. Um, but just just. What surprises me the most is just those guys that just jumped out in the middle of the night. They fit to the ground. And they just and another highlight for the paratroopers is for remembrance sake, is especially the uh there was a town that was an objective, uh Saint Saint Mary Gleese. It was a, a town with with a uh, church in the center of it. And it was an objective for the American paratroopers. And unfortunately, this was a German stronghold. And unfortunately, when they dropped, uh, most of, basically, it, most, like, more 80% of the Amer- American squads that were supposed to take it dropped inside of the town. They didn't drop. Well, they were supposed to drop outside of it, regroup and assaulted they were dropped in like i said these this stuff it's dangerous using the paratrooper method you live by it you die by it and so they dropped and they landed straight in the middle and into the town and were basically gunned down by the germans inside because it was basically slow death for these paratroopers as they could see they were going straight inside the town into the hands of several Germans with MP40s. So that was something that really uh, must be remembered to so many paratroopers' lives that were lost because before they even hit the ground. They were just basically slow death watching as they got closer and mowed down. Really tragic, uh, tragic for those guys. And that really was kind of started the idea of cerebral shoots. And even today, the paratroopers, your first, you know, your 101 paratroopers and your 82nd, they they don't have, like, the like the skydiving parachutes where you can steer exactly where you're going. Yeah. But they have ones that can divert them by a good bit. Like, they, they have techniques that, like, they aren't the perfect steering system, but they're good enough that they could have got those paratroopers outside the city. Yeah. Um, 
but something else I want to note, especially since that story, you notice in a lot of even war movies that the Germans took over a lot of churches and uh, monasteries. Mm-hmm. And I think my theory for that is, is because a lot of the churches in France and monasteries in France were in prominent locations, you know, like. Usually they were like, like the center of town, like yeah, right they, there. Or there were some on mountains and stuff. Yeah. You could see a lot of stuff around. Very be- beautiful locations. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of them dated back to the Middle Ages before there was much around yeah. them. And I've seen some pictures of the one that you're talking about and just some other ones, and they're just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to believe that the Germans were so heartless that they would take them over and could have just destroyed them. Yeah. You know. But it's it's described in several different storylines where the Germans just took over churches and monasteries and other stuff just because of where they were located, mm-hmm. because they were pro- good locations to watch over stuff. And what is it with monasteries and mountains? It seems like all monasteries in different religions around the world like to be built on mountains. Because like it's the whole thing about mountains is you're closer to God closer to yeah. the heavens um that was the kind of ideology for the the old church fathers is to you know be on a higher be be on a higher peak because like i said it's like bringing you closer and up to god because that's the old point of kind of monasteries is getting closer yeah. to god and separation yeah there's not as many people who live on mountains you kind of you you can more focus there I just know all around the world, like in different religions too, there the monasteries are on mountains, like, and then the and then in India and uh, places like that, they take it to the extreme and put them on top of the Himalayas, and it's like two week journey to get to the monastery, is climb up a mountain. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, one of the reasons that really uh, that I realized that was in a one of I think it was it was either combat or twelve o'clock high and they needed this observation post. They believed that the Germans were using um a monastery on up on a mountain to uh to observe the US troops. And so they had to go up there to just check it out. And it was true. The Germans were using it to observe. And, you know, it's just kind of sad because even, you know, back then it was still considered so uh, civilized war mm-hmm. and churches were supposed to be off limits to combatants. Now, churches were always welcoming, welcoming to non-combatants, especially if they were just trying to get medical attention. Yeah. And you see that a lot. You hear about that a lot. That U.S. soldiers would end up in um, monasteries and different places like that and churches just because they had gotten injured. Mm-hmm. And they would protect them from the Germans. Like, they wouldn't let the Germans know that they were there because their job wasn't to... Their job wasn't about the war. Their job was to take care of people. And that's kind of true in a lot of ways in churches who try to get too involved in politics. You know. Um, and that, but 
that takes me back to the constitutional thing. The separation of church and state says that the state will never get involved in the church. Mm-hmm. It is said that the church should not have possession with the state. That, now I really confused what I was saying. But sometimes people try to get too involved in politics. Yeah. But yeah, I think that that, that kind of that kind of wraps that up. That covers uh, Normandy. So yeah. I know we we you got to talk about all the different aspects, and I know we've jumped from different areas, but uh, it, it's really something that is, really should be remembered on all different fronts. And like I said, is one of the is the most important offensive uh, for war, for uh, World War Two. Um, and just and just remember that this Saturday will be June the 6th. And if you would, just take a moment out of your day and just remember, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like that would be the best way to honor those yeah. who died at Normandy. Because we can't just, forget just them. In no way. We can yeah. never forget what these guys did and what they had to go through, and especially guys that gave their lives uh, because of it. Canadian, British, or uh, French, or American. So just just take a moment out and remember, you know, you don't have to take long, but life, lots of stuff people just forget. Just remember him, you know, just a second just to think about him. Well, all right. We will see y'all in the next episode next week, and we'll be wrapping up World War Two and moving on to a Cold War. <laughs> well, we'll see you later. And bye.